Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smezer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Paseo Podcast. Keep up with us at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you want to follow me, I'm at JS De Leon on Twitter. You can also pitch a story or volunteer with the podcast by reaching out to us on our website, paseomedia.org. To watch the interview portions of our episodes, check out our YouTube channel. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. While you're there, like our videos and subscribe to our channel, of course. Help us get to 100 subscribers. It really makes a world of difference. It has been a busy week for the podcast. We dropped two back-to-back episodes this week, including a bonus episode that dropped yesterday with Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia. We talked to him about the role he's playing in legislation at the federal level that can impact Puerto Rico's uh, colonial, financial, and environmental status, his views on the future of the Democratic Party, and his relationship with the squad in Congress. So after you listen to this episode, definitely go give that interview a listen. You will not regret it. For this week's episode, we welcome Cesar Rosado Marzan. He's a labor and employment law scholar and professor in the University of Iowa's College of Law. We invited him on the show today because there's been some big unionization news in the media recently. In case you haven't seen it, there is a vital election going on to unionize an Amazon warehouse in Alabama, and a lot of eyes are paying attention to what will happen at this warehouse, including Amazon workers nationwide in the thousands. Workers at this Amazon warehouse, to give you some context, could vote uh, either way to unionize or to not unionize. And it's important to keep in mind that if there is a no vote in a lot of these cases for workers, it's less about a no vote against unionizing. And it's more about the fear of retaliation from employers if they vote in favor of unionizing, which can include things like being fired from your job or the entire warehouse being shut down completely. So this story got us thinking about labor and employment law, which is why we reached out to Cesar. But we're not going to only talk about the Amazon warehouse story today. We're also going to discuss the Jones Act and its impact on Puerto Rico, workers' rights, and Joe Biden's statement showing support for unionization efforts, which, by the way, is not something you see very often from a sitting president. But first... If you've been listening to the show, you'll know that we focused our attention at this point of the episode on highlighting Puerto Rican women for Women's History Month. Last week, we highlighted Mariana Brasetti, and the week before that, we highlighted Felicitas Mendez. Since we're talking about labor and employment law today, we're going to stick with the law theme and highlight current Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Many of you may know her as the first ever Latina Supreme Court Justice in United States history. She was nominated by President Barack Obama on May 26, 2009, and confirmed that August by the Senate. If you like law history and Supreme Court rulings, check out some of her majority rulings and dissents, as she is considered one of the most liberal members of SCOTUS. 
For example, she's been on the side of issues like same-sex marriage and against things like unlawful search and seizure. But let's go back in time a bit to Justice Sotomayor's childhood. She is a daughter of Puerto Rican-born parents. She was born in the Bronx and grew up in New York City. Her father passed away when she was nine years old, and her mother worked hard to support Sonia and her brother, which Justice Sotomayor says the sacrifices of her mother really helped make her professional success possible. She went on to earn a bachelor's degree from Princeton University and went on to Yale Law School, where she received her Juris Doctorate. She was also an editor of the prestigious Yale Law Journal before earning her law degree in 1979. From 1979 onward, she's been an assistant district attorney in the New York County District Attorney's Office, moved to the private sector where she litigated international commercial matters at a prominent law firm and rose to become a partner in that firm, served in the U.S. District Court, Southern District of New York, and as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. In addition to her positions on the bench, Justice Sotomayor also taught at Columbia Law School and New York University School of Law. One last fun fact about Justice Sonia Sotomayor, especially if you're a baseball fan, one of her most notable rulings as a federal district court judge in New York was ending the 1994 to 1995 Major League Baseball strike by ruling on a player's salary cap before opening day, restoring the previous labor agreement's terms. If you want to learn more about Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, well, she's written like four books, so there's more than enough out there for you to learn more if you want to. Okay, we have a lot to get through today in this episode, so we're going to bypass our regular news rundown. Let's jump into the interview with Cesar. Cesar, what should our audience know about you? Well, you know, I am, uh, yeah, I teach uh, at the uh, College of Law at the University of Iowa. Uh, I am a card-carrying sociologist. I'm also an attorney. I used to be a union lawyer in New York City, uh, representing big unions like SEIU 1199. Um, I also did a little bit of work in my uh, home country of Puerto Rico uh, with uh, some unions over there before I started to um, teach and write in the area of labor and employment rights and labor and employment law. So, and I've been doing that now for about 12 years. Wow, that's great. Um, you mentioned uh, being in Puerto Rico. Uh, before we get into like the nitty gritty uh, of labor here, um, can you share a little bit about where your family is from in Puerto Rico? What are your roots? Yeah, so I'm uh, born and raised uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, um, that's, that's where my mom and my dad and my younger brother still live. Um, my, my, I have another brother who lives in uh, D.C., in the D.C. area. Um, and so my, my mom and dad are from the west coast of Puerto Rico. So um, Barceloneta, San Sebastián. Uh, and so, yeah, I miss it a lot. I haven't been there in a while and I miss Puerto Rico a great deal. I want to just ask a quick question that relates to the relationship between uh, Puerto Rico and, and the U.S., um, because definitely want to get into later in our conversation, you know, national labor, the, the, the National Labor Relations Act. I want to talk about working centers, collective bargaining. I want to get into all of that. Um, but uh, to kind of focus a bit more on that U.S.-Puerto Rico relationship, um, we just passed the 100th anniversary of the Jones Act. 
Um, so for people, I think for a lot of Boricuas that may not be keeping a pulse on the history between the relationship of, of the U.S. and Puerto Rico, the Jones Act may be something they hear in passing, but aren't exactly sure what it is and its significance. So I was hoping that you could give us a bit more insight. You know, what, what should every Puerto Rican know about the Jones Act? Yeah, no, I think it's a very important thing for us to know about and be very conscious about. So the Jones Act, otherwise known as the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, yeah, 100 years. Um, it's essentially a law that was passed, yeah, you know, earlier in the 20th century by the United States government to uh, basically try to guarantee that the United States can have its own merchant marine, that it made its own ships to carry goods, you know, uh, in, you know, from U.S. port to U.S. port that uh, right, they were uh, manned by US uh, sailors. Um, and the US thought that was really important to do in 1920 after World War I, given that uh, you know, a country could locate your ships and basically leave you incommunicado with the rest of the planet. The problem is that um, you know, while maybe a good idea in 1920, what that has, what has, that has resulted in is that uh, the U.S. Merchant Marine is one of the most expensive ones in the world. It, it isn't very competitive when it comes to other, um, you know, uh, shipping uh, companies. And so Puerto Rico, small island in the Caribbean uh, that depends entirely on, you know, on, on, on ships to bring stuff into the island and to ship things out of the island, uh, has to only use uh, the U.S. Merchant Marines, which are the most expensive in the world. And so um, Puerto Rico isn't unique in having this problem. Guam, uh, Alaska, to a certain extent, Hawaii have similar problems. But given that Puerto Rico is, uh, you know, just, you know, poorer than many of these other jurisdictions, um, has unemployment levels higher than in many of these jurisdictions, it makes things much harder for Puerto Ricans than almost anyone else in the United States jurisdiction, right? So, mm. so you know, it makes everything much more expensive in Puerto Rico. Right? And it also makes things that we make in Puerto Rico that we want to uh, transport to the United States also more expensive. So that makes Puerto Rico not a very good place for you to manufacture things to sell to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty bad place for you to buy things <laughs> if, yeah. right, if everything is going to be more expensive. So given the fact that we, you know, so, so there has been, so this is the, the, the fight to get rid of the Merchant Marine Act or the Jones Act, uh, you know, uh, over Puerto Rico has a long history. But I think, you know, especially since we've been, uh, and by that I mean Puerto Rico, has been in a depression since more or less 2006. Uh, this is one of those things that could pretty much right, ease a lot of pain if, we, if Puerto Rico could start to use, um, you know, shipping ships from other countries that would, you know, reduce uh, the price of things uh, substantially. Just to, just, you know, just to let you know, you know, it costs twice to send something from New York to Puerto Rico than it would cost from New York to Jamaica, mm -hmm. using any other company. So, um, so that's that's how you know where we are right now with this uh, Merchant Marine Act of 1920, otherwise known as, as the Jones Act. Mm. No, that was really helpful context. Um, so, just kind of thinking of a couple of examples here on the import export side. So, if we have to use uh, U.S. ships in order to import export goods, that would be why. On La Isla, a gallon of milk might might cost exponentially more than it would here in the states. Correct. Exactly. Right. So even, exactly. Even so, you know, it's an interesting example because a lot of the milk that we 
consuming Puerto Rico is actually produced in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. right? So you would think, oh, at least you know there it wouldn't be you know a big hit. Actually, it is a big hit because all of those um, uh, you know farmers and their cows they have to import the grain and they have to right import mm -hmm. the uh, uh, fertilizers that used in their farms. All of that comes from right from U.S. ports, mostly from Jacksonville. And it increases, right, their overall, their overhead. And so at the end, we end up all paying more, even for those things that we produce in Puerto Rico and consume in Puerto Rico. Mm. Which, yeah, I mean, which, which makes it incredibly difficult for hardworking families that are, are trying to make a living that, you know, thinking of something like Hurricane Maria, where people needed access to, to groceries, goods. And if you go to the store and you have a $6 gallon of milk, I mean, you're choosing between you're choosing between milk or you know toilet paper. Like that, that shouldn't be a choice that people have to make. They should be able to afford the basic necessities. Um, you know, absolutely, and you know, especially with paychecks being just so much smaller yeah. in the island. I mean, yeah. this is right. I think this yeah. is a real issue. Do you know? Do you know what the minimum wage is there? I know, like. I know here in the United States, depending on what state you go to, there'll be a different minimum wage. Are you familiar with what the minimum wage is right now on La Isla? I, I'm pretty sure, although I'm not, I haven't, you know, you might need to confirm this number, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty sure it is the U.S. federal minimum wage. So right now it's seven, whatever the hour. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and it used to be lower, right? It, it right, used to right. be in the nineties, there were exceptions. So Puerto Rico could actually pay less than the federal minimum wage, mm -hmm. but it is around seven something. Mm. Yeah. Which makes it extremely difficult. I mean, here in here in Chicago, we're slowly getting up to fifteen dollars an hour. Um, so thinking about people surviving off of a little over seven dollars an hour and having to pay more for goods that are imported, it just creates a it's a recipe for ruin. And we're just not setting people up for success um, again, mm -hmm. just to afford the basic necessities. So we're not doing the working poor any any help here um, with something no. like the Jones Act. And then looking at something like imports. You know, if we have cough, something like coffee production uh, in Puerto Rico, you could have a situation where you could have coffee that was made in Puerto Rico or coffee that was made in, I don't know, Ireland. And even though Puerto Rico is much closer, there's a tighter relationship there with the United States. Uh, it might you might have a consumer that sees Puerto Rican coffee at a store in the United States and thinks, uh, well, I think I'm just going to go for the cheaper option. So just the just the the added cost that gets and the burden that gets put on the consumer, just being able to imp export goods from Puerto Rico and import them into the United States, it, we're already not at a at a competitive uh, playing field because there's just so much added onto the cost for for goods coming out of La Isla. Do I have that understanding right? Yes, that yeah. is exactly true. So. You know, you are, you know, so Puerto Rico is a small island. The agricultural sector isn't huge. Um, you know, so most agri, you know, most farmers who want to export anything to, mm -hmm. the, to the states already have to make sure they're, they're engaged in some kind of niche market. So like high grade, so, you know, very exotic type of coffees or mm -hmm. mangoes or whatever. Uh, but if you're going to add to that, like an additional cost just for shipping it because we're using the merchant marines. Right. Well, you could you could do the same sort of coffee or mangoes in Jamaica, similar, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. climate, everything. Then we're we are at a real disadvantage, it seems to me, for for that sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, if we just want to, you know, have a stronger economy in Puerto Rico, 
protect our farmers, protect our small you know, manufacturers, you know, getting rid of this loss, I think, super important. Yeah, no, I hear that. Yeah, well, well said. Um, and just thinking of like the 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 business aspect of this, if if you're, and this is just adding onto what what you've already said, Sasad. Um, but looking at the the consumer base of Puerto Ricans, like if you're a farmer on La Isla, your your uh, you know your your consumer base is around three million Puerto Ricans. Well, you got five million and growing here in the United States. So, like when I go shopping, best believe I'm like, where is the Cafe Rico? Where is El Coqui? Where all? Where I want to like, I want to support people on uh, products that are are made on La Isla. Um, so, like for people like me, I'm actively looking for that. Um, and you would hope that you know there would be policy in place that allows for 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 hardworking men and women, hardworking people on the island to actually make a living off of the hard work that they're they're putting into their products. And with a with a potentially untapped consumer base here in the United States, um, it just makes it that much harder for for a small business or farmers or what have you on La Isla to, to be successful because they're already working at a, at a disadvantage. Um, I hope that's that's would you say that's, that's fair to say? I, that's totally fair, you know, and make me think too. So say you, you know, you, you do have to move from Puerto Rico to Chicago or Denver or whatnot, and you do want to open up a, a small grocery store that mm-hmm. sells, you know, all, all kinds of things, but in, you, know, you can include in that store products from Puerto Rico because there's a community out there interested. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going to be competing with, you know, the stuff that comes from maybe other Latin American countries too and, yeah. And, and and we have this added cost to it. So, you know, a you know, a so general great coffee from Puerto Rico might cost like gourmet prices, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and I think that's that's just patently unfair. Yeah. Yeah. And I think again, this is just another this is another uh, factor to consider when we question, you know, what is what value is brought to Puerto Rico by being underneath the United States umbrella if other islands in the Caribbean are able to have more success from that business perspective that um and and not the limitations of the jones with something like the jones act you know it makes you think like okay well if us being under the united states umbrella is supposed supposed to help us how is that relationship beneficial how is something like the jones act truly beneficial to laila uh, it's just a, I'm not saying that for you to answer. It's just one of those things for people listening. Like, it's just something else to kind of keep in your toolkit when you have these discussions with people. Like, how can a country that wants Puerto Rico to be a part of it have something that uh, negatively affects the potential success that people, the island itself, can have? Speaking of uh, preventative measures, workers at an Amazon warehouse near Birmingham, Alabama, are voting on whether to join a retail workers union. And their Amazon colleagues around the world are basically uh, glued to what's happening in the state of Alabama. They're wondering, how is this vote going to affect them? Uh, Is it going to be a yes vote? Is it going to be a no vote? And I wanted to get your thoughts specifically, not necessarily on the nitty gritty details of the unionization efforts um, in that Amazon warehouse in Birmingham, but more around the recent comments made by President Joe Biden, um, essentially throwing his voice in support 
of unionization efforts uh, across the country. And in his tweet, he specifically mentioned Alabama. Didn't say Amazon specifically, uh, but he, he did mention unionization efforts in Alabama in the same messaging. I've long said America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class and unions built the middle class. Unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the playing field. They give you a stronger voice for your health, your safety, higher wages, protections from racial discrimination and sexual harassment. Unions lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers. I've made it clear, made it clear when I was running, that my administration's policy would be to support unions organizing and the right to collectively bargain. I'm keeping that promise. You should all remember, the National Labor Relations Act didn't just say that unions are allowed to exist. It said that we should encourage unions. So let me be really clear. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. But let me be even more clear. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers, full stop, full stop. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice as America grapples with the deadly pandemic, the economic crisis and the reckoning on race, what it reveals, the deep disparities that still exist in our country. And there should be no intimidation no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. No supervisor, no supervisors should confront employees about their union preferences. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice. And it's your right, not that of an employer. It's your right. No employer can take that right away. So make your voice heard. God bless you all, and may God protect the workers and their families who are trying to figure out how to make it, make it fairly. Thank you. Okay, so some strong words from the president there. Um, and we were talking before we started hitting record, um, before we hit record, Sasad. Um, this is a this is a big deal. I mean, to hear this from a sitting president, I I, I am not a presidential historian, but I cannot remember or hearing or seeing a sitting president throw their voice and their platform behind unionization efforts. Now, I've heard uh, of presidential candidates, presidents being in support of unions, but I, I don't think I've ever seen or heard of a president actively weighing in on the uni unionization efforts within a particular state or for a particular company. Um, so just curious to hear from you, like, it, how big of a deal is this? No, I think it's a huge deal, and um, and it's and it it's a huge deal. It's also, um, too you know, it, it it's it's too bad that it looks so different and new because mm -hmm. that was exactly or in actually in a much larger way what FDR Franklin Delano Roosevelt did in the 1930s when uh, you know the U.S. Congress passed uh, the the Wagner Act in 1935, the National Labor Relations Act. And the word on the street was the president wants you to join the union. Mm. And so and what the president, uh, President Biden said, there is absolutely you know, correct on the law. Right. So 
it is the employees, the workers' choice to join or not to join the union. And under the law, while employers do have a you know a right to free speech, they can't make any threats to the employees. And um, unfortunately, right uh, courts and and so and and, the, and even the National Labor Relations Board has uh, interpreted that language about threats very narrowly. Um, but almost any time an employer speaks to a worker about union and it's negative, it sounds mm. a lot like a threat to me and to most workers. So I think it's huge. Now, um, the context is really important, right? This is a union organizing um, in one of the most important, if not the most important industry today in the United States, which is big tech. Mm. Um, and while many of us think that big tech is basically, you know, San Francisco and all the um, you know, all the software people up there making a lot of money, uh, you know, in front of a computer. Actually, big tech includes, you know, armies of rank and file workers in, mm. in, 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 you know, uh, warehouses like these ones, right, and driving trucks and all of that. And so, uh, and, so, and so it's huge because that is a non-union industry that now, right, we, 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 we're facing the possibility of a significant union organizing campaign. Um, then on top of that, in a southern state that has uh, been very hostile to unions. Um, and, so, and so if uh, the Amazon workers there prevail, that is a huge win, both yeah. on, on the industrial side and also on the state uh, regional organizing efforts that could help labor unions and workers expand in in places that we haven't yet seen them prevail. I saw this as a, as a pretty big deal as well. Hundreds of thousands of Amazon employees nationwide are watching this because it, it truly is one of the most significant unionization drives in a generation, um, if that's fair to say. Uh, when you think about how big of a company Amazon is, when you think about the money that they generate, even in the pandemic, they were making yeah. a ton of dough. And yes, maybe some of these warehouses, they, they pay a little bit above minimum wage. But in, in a lot of cases, you might have a situation where workers might want or politicians may, may demand uh, that a Amazon warehouse pays above living wage. And Amazon might come and say, and they've done this before, okay, yeah, we'll pay a little bit above a minimum wage, but we're going to take away some of these other benefits. So really, you're just... It's like Indiana Jones uh, in that first Indiana Jones movie. You're just swapping one thing out for another and not really making progress. So you might get a little bit of money uh, added to your hourly wage, but maybe you're going to lose some of that health care benefit. Maybe you're going to maybe they'll take away a little bit of your vacation leave, your PTO leave. Looking at these things with a magnifying glass and seeing exactly you know who's prevailing in this worker-employer relationship is super essential. To see, so to see this unionization drive, it, it's incredible. And to see a, a sitting president throw their voice behind it, it is pretty interesting, too. And when you look at some of the statistics and the makeup of the workers at this Amazon warehouse, um, according to the union, roughly 85% of the workers at the facility are black. Most are women. And a lot of people at the warehouse are complaining about the grueling work schedule, the grueling work itself when they're on their shift, unsafe conditions. Um, you can look at documentaries and reports about women that were pregnant that had lost pregnancies based off of the working conditions at Amazon warehouses. And even things as simple as inadequate bathrooms and meal breaks. 
These are things that maybe someone making a salary may not pay any mind to because you're given your 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 you have that money guaranteed. You're given in most cases you're 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 not being hounded as much for for uh, you know to take something as simple as a bathroom break or a lunch break. Um, but at Amazon, just the rate and at the clip that uh, they're trying to fulfill orders, there are a lot of practices in these warehouses that do not make for the best working conditions for hard for hardworking people and hardworking families in this country. Um, and there was a quote in a, a CBS News report from one of the union organizers. Michael Foster was quote, quoted as saying, Amazon is treating the people disrespectfully. Um, and I think that sums up well um, in simple terms, you know, what workers there are really fighting for. They're fighting for respect. They're fighting for equity. They're fighting to be treated as human beings and not just cogs in a wheel that are meant to make money for one of the biggest countries, companies in the world and one of the richest man, one of the richest men and people in the world. Yeah. Um, so curious to hear from you, like, because I, I, I I wanted to like focus in on something that President Biden said. He said there should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. Um, in your experience, uh, you know, in your experience, Cesar, you know, what has that looked like? What have these intimidation tactics looked like? What has anti-union propaganda looked like? Can you give us a sense just to kind of help us visualize what that what those intimidation tactics yeah. look like? Yeah, no, I mean, this is so this has now been turned into a science by mm -hmm. uh, management attorneys and even some union avoidance firms, firms that just specialized in helping companies avoid labor unions, right? So, um, so the National Labor Relations Act says that employers can't threaten employees, right, if they want to join the union, right? Mm -hmm. So, if I, if I, uh, I'm an employer and I tell my workers, you know, if you even, if I even, here that you're planning to join the union, I'm just going to close the shop down. Or I'm going to fire mm -hmm. you. If I say that, that's a, that's a clear violation of the law. The workers can go to the National Labor Relations Board. The board will investigate. They will put out you know, an injunction of some sort to the employer, right? If there's a union election, they might call the election off and postpone it for some for a certain time so that then you can reestablish what we call the laboratory conditions and all of that is there in the law. Mm. Okay, great, but not great because... Right. What uh, what the, the management uh, community has been able to do here is that they say, well, then don't say you're going to close the shop down. Just say that, in our opinion, if there's a union here, we might go off. We might go out of business. Right. Because we'll mm -hmm. be more expensive than the competition. And then you just couch it in terms of your opinion, your opinion. It's my opinion. It's what I think might happen, given the market, given whatever. And um, but workers are still listening, right? The, the message is, oh my God, if I join the union, I'm going to lose my job, and that is, you know, that that scares workers away mm -hmm. from joining unions. And so, mm -hmm. and so that's normally the way that that uh, right that these campaigns occur. The other thing that is, you know, that is blunter than what I just mentioned, and it is, I think, uh, maybe a more clear violation of the law, right? Is when the employer actually calls the workers to say the cafeteria, right, and they have to show up. It's in the, during during working time, and if they don't show up, it's like you know not obeying orders, right? You can be mm -hmm. disciplined for that, and they have to show up and they have to listen to some person talk about why unions are bad, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And and the union doesn't have the same right to be there and give its own opinion about why they think unions are good, 
They don't even have the right to be in the workplace to talk about the union. They, right? they can't even be in the parking lot if it's owned by the employer. They have to do this right, completely off the premises. And so um, that inequality in terms of trying to provide workers with the message is a huge problem. Um, and so, uh, but that, those are basically the ways that these uh, anti-union campaigns occur. Um, and so it's, it's great that President Biden is, uh, you know, at least publicly saying that the employer, you know, can't engage in any sort of threatening coercion kinds of activities. Um, you know, whether or not it's going to have an actual impact on the ground, I, I think it's still to be seen. Uh, I, I doubt it, <laughs> but, mm. but it's still a very good thing, right? Uh, I, I do think that unionization is, you know, like 90% politics and the other part is law. And so to the extent that we can have uh, the right politics for it, um, I think that's a good way to, you know, to promote, uh, mm. you know, worker power and unionization. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, he did. President Biden did mention uh, the National Labor Relations Act. Um, curious to hear from you as we're talking about unionization efforts uh, across the country, specifically in Alabama. Um, what groups? What What about the groups that have no uh, NLRA protections? I'm thinking like. Um, you know, are healthcare workers included in that? Agricultural labor, uh, gig workers, like people working for things like Instacart, Uber, Lyft. Like, what groups aren't protected under the yeah. uh, NLRA? So the NLRA is supposed to to cover most workers of the private sector, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so it excludes uh, public sector workers, and the assumption is states through their state labor laws can protect those workers and should protect those workers. But mm. so, so we're, but we're going to focus on the private economy where there's interstate commerce. That's where Congress, where Congress can actually get involved in. So, mm. um, and then, but then, right. It, it, so it covers, suppose it covers all employers and all employees. Uh, at least the employer has to be a certain size. So we're mm. not going to cover little tiny employers. We'll leave that also for the states. Yeah. Um, like if you had a like if you had a corner store that had like three employees. Yeah. That probably wouldn't. That probably mm. won't be covered, right? Mm. Um, I mean, it depends how much money they make, and there's also like number of employees they should have, and it might mm. change a little bit from administration to administration. But um, but yeah, we're we're concerned about the bigger the bigger employers, and so um, now. What's interesting is that there were some in exclusions in included in the NLRA in its origins, among them domestic workers and agricultural workers. Those exclusions have nothing to do with anything except the fact that Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats, you know, wanted their plantation-type economy not to be touched by this law. And so, you know, they're mostly black workers, right, in agriculture, there were their workers, right? There's the federal government shouldn't get involved here and they shouldn't be unionizing. And the same thing with domestic workers, like don't touch our, my castle, my family, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and so to this day, we still have those exclusions in the law. The other thing that the law excludes are independent contractors that was put in place in 1947. And the history behind that is also very interesting um, but, but now we have this sort of independent co contractor exclusion. So what that, hap what that has happened, what that has created is that we have agricultural workers who are not covered by the National Labor Relations Act, mm -hmm. right? And so in order for you to unionize the 
unionized in agriculture, you might you need coverage under state law, um, or you need to do it without any legal protections, which is really difficult given the fact that the work there is highly oppressive and the workers are subordinated in 10,000 different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, so that's one huge problem. Um, you know, well, you know, you mentioned healthcare. Uh, so most, most healthcare workers, I think, I don't know if most, a lot of them are covered. There are certain um, limitations on how you can strike if you are a hospital worker. Um, but where, when it gets trickier is in, in home health work, right? Because some of those home health workers are classified as independent contractors, so they're not included. Hmm. Or they're classified as domestic workers, so they're excluded, right? And so, um, and so while there are unions of home health aides and home health workers, um, they, they've only been able to, unions have only been able to do that through sort of highly, you know, very interesting, very complicated uh, campaigns where you create something called the employer of record, which is normally a state agency. Um, and then you, um, you know, and if you can make that agency be sort of separate from the government, then you can do it through the NLRA. So it's complicated. There mm. are some, some of these employees are covered, uh, but many of them, right, they remain basically, basically without unions. Um, the gift workers, that, you know, for, so there, the thing is that the, these tech companies are saying that these workers are independent contractors, which is a complete lie, right? So independent contractors is the plumber that you bring home. You know nothing about plumbing. Mm -hmm. They know everything about plumbing. They tell you, I'll fix your faucet for $300. And you're very happy they're doing that because you would never be able to fix your faucet, right? Mm -hmm. This is different, right? So this is, I give you, I, I, you have to join my app. I will tell you who to pick up. I will tell you how much you're going to get paid. It might change from, you know, from morning to night. If you don't pick up the certain amount of people, I'm, I might actually give you less clients or farther away clients. I have huge control over what you do. Oh, the difference is that you're using your own car and you might be able to, you know, work at night or at night, you know, in the morning and you're not, don't actually have a supervisor giving you your schedule. But otherwise, the control exerted over, like, I'm here thinking about Uber, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, Instacart, the places you were mentioning, it, huge control. So this argument has been made, the argument that they're not employees, that they're independent contractor has been tried in the UK and the Europe. It's going nowhere. It's, it's actually go, it's actually had some roots here because mostly Republican NLRB members and and I and, and, you know I don't want to be bipartisan here, but that's the truth. The politics are that they have been sort of parroting the same thing that these companies are saying, even though it has no basis in the law. Mm. So we do expect that under um, you know the new administration, we're going to see a change in this regard. But I do think that we would need something more permanent in the law to say that these workers are in fact employees so, so that we can sort of not have to be always changing, you know, our, our, our view about this with, with the change in government administration. I, I brought this up in, in my intro on a few episodes, um, and I, I've slipped it in here when referencing Bad Bunny's participation um, in uh, WWE events. I don't know if you're keeping up with wrestling news. <laughs> I haven't watched wrestling in a long time, and I'll tell you why in a second. But for context, um, Bad Bunny performed at a pay-per-view. Um, he's a big wrestling fan. They ended up 
setting it up so he won one of their titles and i think he's going to perform at wrestlemania uh okay. and like a competition so i say all this because i i brought that up because of course one of the biggest artists in the world he's boricua so we reference that on the show and we do a little news rundown um, but I've made this point when I bring up that news, you know, I think that's a fun story. I, you know, I, I, I like seeing someone live out their dream, if, especially if they're a part of that fandom. I used to watch wrestling a lot growing up. Um, and then I learned that uh, wrestlers are treated as independent contractors. So to your point, Sassada, like with your Uber example, like they are putting contracts where they can't perform for other wrestling promotions. Um, they'll have to pay out of pocket for a lot of their own benefits. Uh, if some wrestlers were to get injured while performing for a company like World Wrestling Entertainment, the time they're off can like, let's say you're out, out on injury for two months, will get added onto their contract. So they'll be it, it locked into an even longer contract than when they came in. Um, and things like media appearances, uh, what they can and can't do on and off screen is hyper controlled by that company. Um, and I've said on the show that I don't even want to watch wrestling until there is a wrestler's union. So to hear you saying how, you know, difficult it can be for independent contractors, especially not having this protection under the N the NLRA. I mean, it just, it, again, just feels like an uphill battle for workers just to be treated with the respect and dignity that they deserve and watching something as silly as wrestling. Sorry for any wrestling fans. I don't think it's silly. They're awesome athletes, but like something as simple as watching something like wrestling, we don't really think about the inner dynamics of what the workers are put through. And these men and women are putting their lives on the, or their, their bodies on the line to entertain us just like Uber drivers are, you know, we've seen carjackings here in the, uh, here in Chicago of Uber and Lyft drivers being being um, attacked and, and their cars being stolen you know where, where are the where are the protections for them it's not like it's just some one-off job like you said calling a plumber in and having them work on your faucet or your to toilet shower whatever like there are some dynamics here that we're not considering the brevity of just what we you know what we need to what we need to include in terms from a policy perspective that actually puts workers first um, and puts them on an equal playing field with their employers because I think it's fair to say I mean we have people here that are seriously being taken advantage of by a lot of these Silicon Valley companies companies like Amazon so looking connecting this to you know, the unionization efforts in, in Alabama, if this is a yes to unionize this warehouse, the ripple effect that that could create in, in Amazon warehouses across the country. Same thing with my example with World Wrestling Entertainment. If those workers were to unionize, um, these are million dollar, billion dollar companies. You know, if workers unionize, you know, this argument that while well, the company will shut down is such BS to me, says Sad, when you're making millions and billions of dollars, you can raise people's wages. You can give them benefits. There's no reason. Absolutely. There's no reason why an executive in Wall Street is having a million dollar bonus and people working in a warehouse have to scrape just to make it by from one paycheck to the next. <laughs> We're going to take a quick pause with the cause, but no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to talk more about labor and employment law with Cesar, including what worker centers are and what collective bargaining is, and we're going to hear what he's obsessed with today. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. 
when you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based grassroots educational health and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, Give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's p-a-s-e-o-p-o-d at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. So let's talk a little bit about collective bargaining 101. We're going to put that uh, the that PhD to use here. Uh, <laughs> um, collective bargaining 101. Take us through this little course, little mini course. You've touched on this uh, a number a few times in our conversation, Cesar. But um, can you give us like the rundown? You know, what is collective bargaining? You know, how is it important? Why is it important? Yeah. So you know, collective bargaining basically is um, it's an institution it's a it's thing that we can do right that it's protected by law um, where workers can come together right as a group and by group I mean two or more okay and they can um, to in order to discuss with management with their boss their terms and conditions of employment in a way where they can also reach agreements on how to change those terms and conditions of employment in ways that might better benefit the workers, but also because we're entering into an agreement might also benefit the employer. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's basically a way of giving workers a say in their workplace. It's a way of making you know, the workplace more democratic and not a dictatorship. Um, and it's certainly a way given that these are protected rights, a way of giving workers uh, certain power, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we we tend to think that we all have to obey our boss, no matter what they're saying, what they, what they're saying. That really the only recourse we we have if we don't like what we're being told to do is we have we have to quit, right? It's employment at will. We either stay or we go. But if we stay, we have to obey, like mm -hmm. a good servant. Um, but actually, the law says that you don't have to put up with that. That if you and your colleagues want to have a discussion with management and agree on certain things, you can do so. Now, you, the law does say that in order to force management by operation of law to sit down with you, you need majority support. Mm -hmm. So right, if you're 20 at the workplace, you need 11 of you right, to mm -hmm. say we want to talk to the boss and you know, come up with a plan about bathrooms. You mentioned bathrooms. It's a, interestingly, bathrooms is one of the historically most important issues of class struggle, believe it or not, right? Mm -hmm. Just the, mm -hmm. the bathroom break, the place yeah. where you can go. 
Um, that reminds me so, of, um, to interrupt you, but just for people listening, a good example would be something like the migrant farm worker movement with Cesar Chavez and um, Dolores Huerta. Like you had migrant farm workers that were picking the, the produce that we enjoyed around the dinner table for years. And many people, th there weren't even bathrooms like outhouses, uh, porta potties provided to workers to even just take that break. So where do you go to use the bathroom? Right. Like it's exactly. something, something as simple as that, that maybe we, we take. And for guys that might be easier to deal with than for women, but when right. it's women, it's, 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 it's actually could be dangerous. Yeah. And so like, I just, I, yesterday I discussed with my students a case about urinary tract infections in a workplace mm -hmm. because, you know, the women weren't given proper sanitation facilities. So, yeah. um, so I think that, so that's basically what collective bargaining is right and, and the union is just a group that you form to be able to engage in this thing that we call collective bargaining at one point in u.s history 40s 50s um, a third of um all workers were under a collective bargaining agreement um you know now they were mostly they were mostly white workers right so so we've had a, a problem with the way that this law has actually been able to impact workers of color and women, and they were mostly men too. Um, but that said, you know, that third, that third in, under a union contract had a huge impact, not only on their own uh, families, but in other families, because other employers would try to copy collective bargaining agreements in order to remain competitive and also to evade the union from organizing their workplace, right? So the union contract became the model. Now, at today, it's 6%. At 6% density, 6% of U.S. households, right, are, they're, they're, 6% of U.S. workers are under some kind of collective bargaining agreement in the private sector, in the private sector, right? And, and, and when I said the third, that was also the private sector. 6%, now you're not the model. You are the exception, right? And when you're the exception, you start to look like you're too expensive. You are asking for too much. Like nobody has these kinds of rights. And that just doesn't help uh, workers generally to uplift themselves and actually remain as part of the middle class, mm -hmm. right? So, and, and I think we have to be very clear, and this is, it is not controversial that if I, when I say that unions is what created, are what created the U.S. middle class. Mm -hmm. And without unions, we actually do not know how to maintain a middle class. We just do not know how to do that. Yeah. No, well, well said. I mean, and I'm glad we're having this, this discussion. You know, I'm very proud to be here in Chicago, like the birth of the, the labor movement, the going back to the Haymarket riot. So, yeah, again, just some kudos to you. Appreciate you uh, letting me sit in your classroom here uh, and dropping this knowledge. I, I did want to like pose to you a, a, um, a counterpoint that I'll hear sometimes from from people um, in my conversations with union organizers when, when they're trying to convince somebody on the importance of, of joining a union or voting yes to unionize. Um, and I'll actually use this quote from one of the workers at that same Amazon warehouse in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, this person was quoted also in an NBC News report. Um, the, they weren't named, but um, they, they were quoted as saying, I do not see a point in paying somebody to do something I am fully capable to do myself, and that being advocating. What would you say to somebody that said to, to you, if you were trying to, to explain to them the importance of, of unionizing, what would you say to somebody that said, why am I going to pay extra money to a union? That doesn't seem like it benefits me at all. Yeah. So I, I think I have two thoughts about that. The first one is that, you know, 
while we, we can all individually be very, very skilled right, in how we um, negotiate things with our boss and advocate for ourselves, right? And that, you know, and that worker might be totally true. He or she is the most skilled advocate of him or herself, you know, miles around. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's not the same, right, when you are using those skills, representing just yourself, mm -hmm. than when you're representing, you know, everyone in the workplace, right? Because mm -hmm. when you're representing everyone in the workplace, you can also put pressure on the employer, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. you want fair scheduling. Right. We want to get our schedule. I don't know exactly what all the issues are, but some of them de are deal with their scheduling, I'm sure, with overtime. Right. And they want to have some rules about this. It's different for me to organize, you know, to do that on my own. Right. And then if the employer says no, now again, I can just leave. And maybe the employer, you know, might be a little bit hurt by that, but not it's not going to be the same if we all leave, right? if we all decide we're going to strike against the mm. employer and so i think that the the, the, the power of the of, of collective bargaining in the union is that collective power mm. um and and so that, that's one thing the other thing is that you know these dues are it, that isn't a service so so some unions for sure right structure themselves as if they were a service provider okay like you're buying representation and going to provide representation to you um, to the extent that's the model in Alabama, then I, I think I probably might agree a little bit with this worker. Um, that is not, but that is not the way that unions should be doing their business, right? So that fee that you're paying is to be able to do the work of your collective activities, right? To be able to, um, you know, if you have to go on strike, to have a strike, from, if you, you know, to, to put, put the placards in order to, have radio programming to talk to the workers about the union. That costs money. It doesn't come from nowhere. Um, and so it's a way of pooling resources to do this work. And it seems to me that, that you know, that, that at least generally speaking, right, uh, pooling all of those resources to advocate for someone is much more powerful than doing it individually, right? Mm -hmm. um, so now maybe the worker thinks otherwise, like that worker has the right to then, you know, up not to vote for the union, and, and that might be the end of the story. But um, I know I think experience might teach many of us otherwise, that it's much better to go in with a group um, mm -hmm. than to go it um, alone. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, looking at, you know, you've touched on this a few times here too, Cesar, but, you know, things like the five day work week, nine to five, um, work schedule, um, access to bathrooms, breaks, like those are all things that wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for people unionizing. With an individual person bargaining for that. No, that right. came out to group collective activity. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, we're now a semester in, we're almost at finals here as we wrap up our discussion. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about worker centers. Um, what should we know about them and how can they help non-unionized workers? No, worker centers are very important. And that's, that's, that's so, so as I said, I, 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 I was a union lawyer in New York. Um, I teach traditional labor law, but I've gotten very interested in this other thing called worker centers. The mm -hmm. worker centers are not unions. So what are they? Worker centers are community groups. They're community groups, but they're community groups that get involved mostly or mainly or, or just completely, right, 
on workplace related issues. Okay. And so, so, so one big difference is they don't go to the workplace and organize the workers in one workplace to sign up for the union to bargain with management over terms about anything. That's not what they do. Okay. What they do is, so they, uh, they mostly, you know, they have their doors open for members of the community to come and say, oh, you know what, my boss hasn't paid me my wages. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what, my boss um, is harassing me at work. Uh, my boss wants to sleep with me. Uh, my boss, right? So they, mm-hmm. they start to articulate what are the problems that they have at work. Most of the time, they're organized, uh, they're organized in uh, the worker centers are found in low-wage worker communities. A lot of them are mostly immigrant. And, and I, most of them, I would say, or a huge part of them are undocumented workers who come to the worker center, right? So they also have immigration issues and other things. And so what the worker center does is it gets community support. Um, so, right, other community organizations, clergy, even local politicians, and they create these coalitions and then they go confront the boss about the fact that they're not paying Rosado his wages and probably no one else in that workplace. Or they owe these workers three weeks of pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to these basic rights of just getting paid, not getting harassed, right? Those kinds of things, worker centers are, we have over 200 of them in the country. Um, and I think they're fundamental because these workers have nowhere else to go. They, they mm-hmm. don't have a union. Um, you know, many times they don't speak the language. They might not have, uh, documents to work in the country. And so they are pretty much very scared and lost. And, and so worker centers are really feeling a huge gap. Um, the other thing worker centers are doing, uh, which is something I find very exciting about, is because they bring so many different folks around themselves, clergy, traditional unions, um, uh, you know, other community groups. Um, you know, I've been in some actions where they bring, you know, Jewish groups and Catholic groups. And, right? and so um, they, they create something that I call a moral economy. So they start to talk about, you know, what people should be earning and how much meaning both from the rich to the poor, right. Mm-hmm. In moral terms. And that is something, and that is something that unions used to do really well when they were very powerful. Right. And that we sort of have lost it today. We talk about the market, you know, and efficiency and things like that, but they're saying, no, there's just some level of, you mentioned dignity and respect. That's their key terms. Those are their key terms, right? It is undignified mm-hmm. for you not to pay these workers. It's undignified for you to be harassing your workers in this way, to threaten your workers in whatever way, right? And they come in with the priests and the, and, and the clergy and the others, and they actually tell these things to the employers, right? Might go to those churches too. And so I think that in that sense, they're also creating a sort of general environment of, you know, of, of an economy that's just more, you know, uh, you know, this more fair for everyone. Uh, and so, and so I, I do think that worker centers have a huge role to play, despite the fact they're very small, they don't have the memberships unions have, they don't have dues, they don't engage in collective bargaining, but they do other things that I think are very important. Uh, we are asking all of our guests what they're obsessed with. Now, this doesn't have to be related to Puerto Rican culture. It doesn't even, ha- even have to be related to our conversation today. Um, but just curious to hear from you, Cesar, uh, you know, what are some things you're obsessed with? You know, be- because we've been now one year in a pandemic um, and both the work that I do, the work that my wife does, you mentioned my wife, she's an ER doctor and mm-hmm. very, really very serious stuff like workers' rights and yeah. you know, viruses. So I like to think about, I'm also obsessed about things that can take me out from 
thinking about those things every now and then. Mm -hmm. So the idea of going back to a, a beach is something I'm obsessed about. I want to go back home to Puerto Rico and I want to spend some time at the beach doing absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> so the other thing I'm obsessed about is sci-fi movies and, um, and fantasy yeah. shows. So, you know, um, I have uh, Grogu, little baby Yoda over there. <laughs> Um, I watch, uh, you know, I've been watching now uh, the Avengers with my sons. Mm. Um, and I got into this recently into this show. I just binge watched it. The Expanse. Okay. Now, The Expanse yeah. is sci-fi, but it is, I would say it is less than Star Wars. And it's not totally fantasy. Like it, it is a critique of our own society, mm -hmm. you know, and like seeing cap a capitalist society 300 years into the future with the same problems, just with much better technology. Hmm. Um, so much more dangerous also for people. But that said, it's just, you know, amazing to see other worlds and escape a little bit from, you know, all the serious and bad stuff that I think is going on around us right now. No, I hear that. And I, I had mentioned to you before we, we started recording, um, also a lover uh, of sci-fi fantasy. We had uh, the host of Trader of the Force on the show a few episodes ago to talk about Star Wars. If I would have known that you were obsessed with that, I would have invited you into that conversation because <laughs> I'm sure you would have had some hot takes. Um, yeah. Fun fact, actually, I'm, I'm trying to get through Battlestar Galactica, the reboot from... Man, I, don't, I want to say early 2000s. That was on the Sci-Fi Channel. Did you ever watch Battlestar Galactica? I haven't seen it, but I have a friend that said you have to watch that too. It's good. I mean, yeah. I, I'll be honest. I'm only in season two. I don't know that everything holds up like graphics wise, but um, it, it's, it's it's probably worth your time. Definitely mm -hmm. would recommend. Um, okay, cool. Maybe in another episode, Cesar, we'll have you on and we'll just do a Boricua rundown of like top sci-fi and that would fantasy. Be yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, before we sign off, I uh, just want to give our listeners a chance to keep up with you. Um, do you have a website, social media? Give us all the things. How can people stay up to date with you? Yeah, so stay up, uh, you know, keep up with me it's at CF Rosado, uh, at CF Rosado, Cesar F. Rosado. Um, that's my Twitter handle. Um, and I post things up there. Um, sometimes they're, most of the time, they're pretty serious things, you know, labor issues, but sometimes also about Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I recently, you know, posted something there about this uh, law that was the bill in the house regarding Puerto Rican statehood. So I think AOC's one is a little better, so, or much better. So I have that. Um, and so, uh, I would say that, and, and there, I, there are also links to my uh, Iowa College of Law um, website, papers, and other things that are sort of more professional. Um, in terms of you know worker centers, the Center Worker for Justice in in Iowa is is an extremely good worker center for um, agricultural workers. And Arise Chicago, uh, Arise Chicago here in Chicago is fantastic for urban workers, and you know most of the uh, retail uh, restaurants and, and that sort of uh, industry. So, yeah. Right on. Okay. Well, Cesar Rosado Marsan, thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Cesar Rosado Marzan for being on the show today. As a reminder, you can watch our interview with him on our YouTube channel this Monday. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. As you're listening to this, you'll most likely be 
uh, able to see our video interview with Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia as well on our YouTube channel. Stay tuned next week for an all new episode of the podcast. We may do a panel episode on the two different bills in Congress trying to address the issue of Puerto Rico status. But, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. I I still have to decide. So we'll see what happens. As always, if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or share a new story you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, paseomedia.org, to do just that. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, Connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate. <laughs>